The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Another 65 coronavirus deaths push the fatalities towards 500, with the US and the UK now announcing new evacuation measures. Meanwhile, cracks emerging in the World Health Organization's backing of China's response. The forces with Disney, apparently, as the Baby Yoda franchise encourages more than 28 million subscribers to sign up for its streaming service. But the media and theme park giant says it will take a $175 million hit from the coronavirus outbreak. In Shanghai, the business there has been really strong. And it's a shame that we had to shut down. But obviously, this is something that is a big concern. To us as well, we have you know, thousands of people that work for us in, in that area of the world. Uh, tough time for Ford investors, unlike Tesla, of course. Shares in the former plunging just over 10% in after-hours trading as the carmaker delivers disappointing guidance for this year and warns about the impact of the coronavirus. And Pete Buttigieg takes the lead in Iowa with a partial count showing him ahead of his Democratic rivals Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden in the first key election test of 2020. A campaign that some said should have no business even making this attempt has taken its place at the front of this race a snubbed handshake and a torn-up speech. Partisan divisions dominate President Trump's State of the Union address as the U.S. leader boasts about his record on growth in a campaign-style speech. The years of economic decay are over. Since my election, U.S. stock markets have soared 70%, adding more than $12 trillion to our nation's wealth transcending anything anyone believed was possible. This is a record. Uh, So welcome to the programme. Let's start off with uh, some earnings here. So Siemens numbers coming through here. Um, Interesting that the wires have gone straight in on Siemens Post weaker than expected Q1 industrial profit. I think it's a a bit of a mixed bag. It is a beat on the net line. So the the group giving us a first quarter net profit of uh, just over a billion euros here against the expectation of 912 million euros. Um, It is a slight miss, though, on the revenue line. The uh, the revenue coming in um, at 20.32 billion euros for the first quarter against the forecast of 20.64 billion. In terms of uh, the order line, 24.76 billion is against 21.99 billion. Uh, so net profit and revenue are higher here, but the uh, wires, as I say, are running with this line where they say um, the group effectively. Uh, being impacted in the first quarter by a downturn in in the digital industries business and the wind power unit. Uh, The uh, trains to industrial software maker, Reuters go on to say, said its industrial operating margin, including severance payments, fell to 8.3% 
from 10.5% a year earlier. And therein lies the rub here. In terms of the um, earnings per share uh, guidance, the uh, group confirming the full year 2020 basic EPS guidance in the range of uh, 6.3 to 7 euros. Let's catch up with Aneta, who is in Munich, and just can give us a, a li- little more flesh on the bones, I think, around what we're seeing from Siemens here and how Joe Kayser will feel about the numbers he's delivering. Aneta, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Well, actually, I think the market will take that as a a bit of a disappointing start to the year. Um, Siemens itself is saying that they started to the year slower than expected. But despite that sort of uh, subdued start, they are sticking to their guidance. And uh, most likely this is quite quite, uh, important for the market as such. You were saying that revenues came in uh, like a little, a tad lower than expected. And uh, that is very right. Net income, though, was higher than expected. So it's more or less a mix back for the first quarter. But what they say about the outlook is quite interesting as well, because they say that they're still expecting this year to have, um, we expect global macroeconomic development to remain subdued in fiscal 2020. And they especially look at geopolitical risks, uh, which are not um, yeah, remedied, so to say. Um, I guess for this year, it will still be a very big restructuring or reorganization year for Siemens. Joe Kayser will go down in the history books for Siemens as the man who restructured Siemens the most, most likely in the company's history with managing to really restructure this conglomerate into a fleet structure, IPOing or selling most parts of the company. So essentially, what remains from the old Siemens will be a play on the digital industries. And here, the wires are very right to say that the digital industry part is weak. They, the digital industry unit is impacted by slow growth in automotive. And they are also saying, um, hold on, where is it? Uh, the It's especially weak because we have a continued weakness in the automotive and machine building industry. So it's essentially, again, goes back to the core of what Germany is good at, automotive and and machinery industries, where we see general weakness in the world. And this is mirrored in the numbers here from Siemens as well. Um, We already knew that the health and near unit and also that the um, the energy unit or uh, Gamesa was quite weak. They already they released earnings earlier this week. Um, and now going forward, it will be interesting to see when they are going to IPO and how they are going to IPO their energy business. Siemens is confirming today that they're planning to IPO the energy business, which is the old style energy and also the wind power energy, uh, which they are going to combine in September. So another big IPO most likely this year for from Siemens um, in Germany. With that, back to you. Yeah, and Annette, just before we let you go, um, just on the uh, protesters, can you give us an update? What uh, What's the latest on what we might expect? 
Well, actually, today it's also the AGM of Siemens. And already yesterday, they, they kind of gathered and Greenpeace um, did sort of a blockade of, um, at the Siemens headquarter because they're protesting against Siemens' involvement in a very controversial mine project down in Australia. And Joe Kayser was not very, um, yeah, he, he didn't really manage to get the, the protesters on board. He more or less went with the line, well, you don't really engage with me, so I'm open for engagement, I'm open for dialogue. So I guess we're going to see a very heated debate today at the AGM of Siemens. And even the likes of BlackRock have said that they might actually not vote in favor of, um, of Kaiser as the CEO in Germany as such at an AGM. Also, the CEO and the management will get a vote of trust or not, or, or distrust. And we'll see, it will be super interesting to see how, how big the fraction of distrust will be in Joe Kaiser going forward, because at least internally or in Germany, he's, he's very much under pressure, whether he's still the right man uh, uh, on top of the company. And there is a lot of rumors going on how long he's going to stay. With that, back to you. All and, right. Annetta, thank you very much for that. Did you see uh, Paul Kelly? New yeah. song in Australia? No. Paul Kelly, you, you'd be a fan of Paul Kelly, well, I would guess. He's actually related to my old headmistress. Is that right? Mm. How curious I is know. that? But, uh, so he um, has released this song, Sleep Australia Sleep, today, uh, which is a lullaby lament against what he says is the inaction of the Australian government over the coal mines and the, the kind of issues that have brought protesters out at Siemens. Fascinating. You're starting to get a split in Australia now around climate change. Yeah. Many still on the denial page, but you are starting to get those calls for action too. Interesting to see how it progresses. Uh, but uh, yeah, Paul Kelly, terrific artist. Meantime, ABB has reported better than expected fourth quarter earnings boasting a 3% rise in quarterly net profit. The Swiss engineering company says it forecasts the global economy will grow at a similar rate as last year. However, it also expects headwinds in certain sectors, including autos and machine builders. The death toll from the coronavirus outbreak, meantime, has climbed to 492, while almost 25,000 cases have been confirmed globally. President Trump says the U.S. is working closely with Beijing on the outbreak, but did not give further details. American Airlines and United Airlines will suspend flights to Hong Kong following the first confirmed virus-related death in the Chinese territory. While in Japan, 10 cases have been confirmed on a cruise ship off the coast of Yokohama. There are now 3,700 people on board. A senior World Health Organization expert has hit out at China's reporting of coronavirus cases during the early phase of the outbreak. The criticism by John McKenzie comes despite the WHO Director General praising Beijing for its handling of the virus. McKenzie said if China had reacted stronger and earlier in the crisis, the government would have been able to restrict the spread of the virus. Meanwhile, the head of the WHO has urged health ministers to enhance data sharing with other governments around the outbreak. Let's get out to Emily for more from Hong Kong with a look at the greater China markets following the developments. Emily, there has been some griping about the borders remaining open between Hong Kong and China. And now we've seen this fatality in Hong Kong, strong action by the, some of the American airlines to suspend flights. Just give us a sense of some of those undercurrents playing out after all, we had those protests that we're watching for many months in Hong Kong, pushing back against Beijing. So just how is this virus altering the politics on the ground in Hong Kong as well as the markets? 
Now, there have been calls, Karen, for the borders to be closed completely here in Hong Kong, and some of the medical workers are doing just that. They're on strike, a couple thousand, if you will, and they are calling for an open dialogue with the chief executive, Carrie Lam. That is what they were doing this morning as the strike action does continue now into the third day. There have been some concerns that newborns as well as cancer patients are going to be on the losing end of that with some of the services being offered at hospitals reduced as a result of thousands of these medical workers, including nurses and doctors, not going to work. Uh, but as far as the markets are concerned, you can see it is green across the board. Uh, there's this expectation of stimulus uh, and uh, the financial authorities are pumping money into the markets, helping to support sentiment as well as the markets. We got the Shenzhen Composite up 2% and Shanghai traded at 2,808. Uh, so a continued rebound for the Chinese markets after a big wipeout on Monday, where something like $450 billion worth of market cap was wiped out of the markets as it returned to trade after the Lunar New Year break. Here in Hong Kong, a more moderate or modest quarter of 1% gain, 59 points higher at 26,735. I just want to bring you up to speed on some of the latest situation here. As we all know, over in Macau, they closed the casinos as of midnight last night. This will be for the next 15 days after a Galaxy Macau employee, 29 years old was found to be a coronavirus case. Uh, total In total, there are 10 cases, so 41 casinos as well as 18 other types of premises, including bars, cinemas, gaming arcades, fitness centers, uh, all closed for the next 15 days. Now, the Macau gaming stocks, very, very mixed. Some analysts saying that this was already well-priced in. The fact that mainland was not issuing visas for their residents or Chinese nationals to go into Macau coupled with Hong Kong closing the Macau Ferry Terminal means that the casinos were already empty as is. So in U.S. trade, we had the likes of Melco and Wynn uh, traded higher, and we're seeing a little bit of a mixed picture here. I want to show you some pictures in Hong Kong Harbor, uh, because this is a developing story here where we have 1,800 passengers on a cruise ship now. Uh, they are being told to stay on board as they are all being tested for the coronavirus. This is the World Dream ship just on a Kai Tak cruise terminal operated by Dream Cruises. They've been denied entry into Taiwan, and so they sailed back to Hong Kong and are currently all being tested there for the coronavirus after 30 crew members on the ship said they had symptoms, including fever. It is unclear how long the passengers and crew will be kept on board that ship, but at least until uh, these uh, tests come back, uh, showing uh, to basically declaring whether or not they are free from virus or not. Uh, so that is a developing story here. We did have uh, uh, the health department hold a press conference about uh, one hour ago detailing all of these, uh, all the latest here. Cathay Pacific in focus as well as it's saying it's cutting 90% of services to the mainland for the next two months, cutting overall capacity by 30%. This as they too try to control the spread of the virus. Passenger numbers in recent days have already collapsed 50%. Uh, the airlines saying the impact has been very significant and the cuts were just temporary for now, driven by commercial and operational realities at the current time. So, for example, they currently serve uh, Shanghai daily with something like 13 to 14 flights. That has been cut down between two and three. Service to the likes of Guangzhou, Xiamen, and Hangzhou have been suspended uh, in this time. Cathay Pacific shares a big rally today. It was up as much as 5%, currently sitting at $10.30 in Hong Kong. So the market's here largely positive. We are seeing a big rebound after the uh, drop-off on Monday. Back to you.
you guys. Can I just look? I, I, this may, may sound controversial, but I'm going to say this anyway. Two things. One, the number of deaths are is horrendous. It's worrying. It's every, all of the above, and I have no scientific knowledge. But there are 492 deaths out of 24,542 confirmed cases now, yeah? Mm. So the mortality rate to infection rate, which is a key measure for all of the agencies dealing with this, has dropped to 2%. Now, originally it was between 2.5 and 3%. The mortality rate has dropped to 2%. Mm. SARS remained constant at 10% as well. Now, at the moment, we understand there's been no mutation of coronavirus. Now, if it does, of course, that could be another worrying time. So the mortality rate is remaining steady at the low end of the echelon. The other statistic which I want to know from the World Health Organization and from the Chinese authorities is what is the, um, the health situation of those who are dying from this? Because are fit and healthy people dying from this or are people with underlying health conditions mm. uh, who are infirm and weak anyway dying from this? Now, that, that does matter. Of course it matters, Karen. Uh, again, no, no, oh, okay, look, I'm not trying to be pedantic about this, but just hear me out. The fact of the matter is, there are people who die of flu every winter. Hundreds of thousands of people. I'm not overestimating this. There are hundreds of thousands of people who die in the globe every single year from flu and flu-like symptoms. Flu, flu-like symptoms and pneumonia. Now, the coronavirus is serious. I am not denigrating how serious it is. I'm just looking at the absolute science here. That's all I want to say. The science of SARS was that there was a mortality rate of 10%. The science of coronavirus at the moment says there is a mortality rate of 2%. So it is five times less virulent according to all the data we have at the moment, Karen. This is science. It's not me making any editorial comment. It is five times less virulent at the moment than SARS. And the other point is it's very important to know whether healthy people are being stricken and dying with this as well. It is very important. That's how you feel about it, but I feel about that's it. That's not slightly. how I feel, Karen. I just well, actually just, just said some... You, Karen, you I'm not trying to make a point. I'm just saying the well, science. Well, through your lens, through my it's lens. It's important for us okay, as journalists just, just to get to the lens. science, Karen. Through my lens, I see it slightly differently. Well, you can give your editorial comment. And I'm just giving the science. My lens is that it does matter. Just because you're fit and healthy, uh, you're going to be fine. But if you're not fit and healthy and you've, you have some other underlying that's illness, not what I said, then it is a problem. But isn't it up to governments to try and stop the spread of the virus? Isn't the onus on governments to try and protect all of the people, all of the population, if they can stop the spread of it, they didn't necessarily with SARS, and you've got a very different global response now, isn't it up to governments to try and do that? And I think what you've seen from the uh, many different airlines, businesses trying to keep their workers at home, very, very different impact from the SARS. So if you look about uh, two different situations, what I've said. I've just put out some scientific facts. Here. You're giving editorial comment. That's absolutely fine. You can do that. Uh, just briefly, I mean, none of us have um, the, the medical training to actually... Which is why I'm trying to look give, at science. ...give too much of a, a scientific perspective on this. But what we, what we do understand, I think, is that the next 14 to 18 days are going to be fairly critical in just understanding the gestation and the evolution of the infection. Um, looking at the way that the Chinese government has released its data around fatalities and infection, it's clear that we're in a phase here where the um, restrictions on travel and the quarantine has been implemented. And now to understand the virulence of the infection, I think we need a fortnight 
to see whether, in fact, the rate of new infections begins to fade, i.e. have they been successful in reducing the opportunity for the virus itself to spread. So at the moment, I think we're just in one of those strange interregnums where we will continue to note and watch maybe the, the death toll increase here. And of course, we can have a look at the information and work out whether those people by and large had underlying conditions which had already weakened their immune systems and whether ultimately this is more serious than SARS or less. But in terms of understanding its impact for markets or for global GDP or for Chinese GDP, I think the next fortnight is just going to be critical. That peak virus element exactly. that many been looking for, we're nowhere near that point. I think exactly. some of the experts are saying we're waiting to see that, that level hit. Yeah. But I'll just make the point around production facilities again. We've seen uh, various comments. Hyundai came out yesterday, impact on their production facilities because they're not getting components out of China. Nike also announcing that there was an impact on some of their output as well. Apple's made comments. So I think across markets, if you look at the economic hit because of the measures taken this time, it's quite different in some ways to SARS. Shares in Ford sank almost 10% in extended trade after the US car maker outlined a disappointing forecast for 2020 after suffering a $1.7 billion net loss in the fourth quarter. The CFO added <clears throat> that the cautious outlook does not include the potential impact of the coronavirus. The auto giant is currently undergoing a massive overhaul, having taken almost half of a total of $11 billion worth of charges it is, uh, is expects to take. That's what it says. Uh, Tesla shares have continued their meteoric rise. The electric car maker's stock rallied again in extended trading after jumping nearly 14% in yesterday's session. That on top of a near 20% rise the day before, its biggest one-day rally in six years. The move came on the back of a number of analyst upgrades. It means CEO Elon Musk's stake in the company is now worth around $30 billion. Billionaire investor Rob Barron is very bullish about the Tesla future. Uh, he told CNBC that the automaker has the potential to generate $1 trillion in revenue. This year, Tesla is going to do somewhere around $32 billion in revenues. And I guess that they're going to do $100 billion in revenues within four years. And I think they have potential for a trillion dollars in revenues within 10 years. So basically, you're looking at the very start of what Tesla, what's going to happen with Tesla. This could be one of the largest companies in the whole world. And head to CNBC.com to find out why some investors believe Tesla has ballooned to unjustified levels. Plus more stories on the short squeeze in the stock. Uh, coming on the program this morning, uh, BNP Paribas beats on the top and the bottom line as CFO Lars Machinel touts the comeback of its fixed income business. We had a strong thick uh, evolution. If you look at it, when it comes to credit or when it comes to rates, it was really strongly up. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, BNP Paribas. Let's have a look at the uh, numbers coming out of the bank this morning. The revenue line in at 11.3 billion euros as against the uh, 10.16 billion a year ago. Operating income, 2.34 billion as against the 1.59 billion euro. Uh, the net profit attributable to equity holders, uh, 1.85 billion euros, up from the 1.44 billion uh, a year ago. Um, let's catch up with uh, Charlotte then on the BNP Paribas story and what the CFO has to say for himself. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Jeff. Well, that's the first French bank reporting earnings for the fourth quarter and the largest one, BNP Paribas. So as you mentioned, it's a bit, it's a bit on Q4 revenues up 11.5%. That was above expectations and net profit up 28.2%. You remember last year, it was a bit of a bumpy ride. At the beginning of the year, they mentioned extreme market condition at the end of uh, the last quarter. And it was a bit bumpy for Q1. Then Q2, Q3 was a bit of a recovery, in particular in CIB when they've announced at the beginning of the year more costs cuts uh, and and so the, the, we they managed to carry on with the momentum in q4 and cib revenue was up 30.3 percent to 3.1 billion fic revenue was up 62.5 percent so here very good performance uh, again uh, also up in equity so that was again here a good surprise for bnp paribas they mentioned positive jaws effect in the three operating divisions uh, operating expenses were up uh, 4.6 percent but here they mentioned the impact of transformation and um, and more cost cuts and restructuring costs here impacting this number return on uh, tangible equity 9.8 percent so they're coming closer to the target that they announced at the beginning of the year 10.5 so they're coming closer to that target again ct1 ratio at 12 0.1%. So again, last quarter, they reached a 12% target that they set themselves and they managed to stick uh, to that number, actually go a little bit uh, above with 12.1. Uh, so again, good news here for BNP. Um, so I caught up with the CFO of BNP Paribas last machine and we had a little talk on all these numbers. Take a listen. If you look at the top line, it's significantly up 5% on the back of continued commercial drive in each of the three divisions and also on the back of the transformation plan. If we look in particular at CIB, which had an outstanding top line increasing 11% on the back of our leadership when it comes to corporate and institutional clients, which we saw in improving market share. If, for example, you look at European uh, CIB, um, we are ranking third on a worldwide banking landscape. So that's positive. If in particular we look at the three C's, so the first C is cost, we're delivering on them, we have positive jaws for the bank and for the operating divisions. On capital, we ended the year on 12.1% common equity T1, which is above the 12% we had foreseen for 2020. And the third one is CIB, I talked about it's doing well. And also if we look at the other two businesses, if we take international financial services, it remains the engine of growth for the bank. Revenues up 7%. And if we look at it, our private banking, number one in Europe. And if you look at domestic markets, which is operating in this low rate environment, the resilience of the top line was clearly to see where it was picking up 1%. So all in all, if we bring it together, bottom line clocked in at 1.2 billion euros, up 8% versus last year. And this is what we will continue to do. So continue diversification, continue franchises and delivering on an ROT of 10%. 
and that was Lars Machinil, the CFO of BNB Paribas. He quite happy with this set of results, quite confident they can become this European champion in, in uh, corporate investment banking and quite happy with the thick division performance here falling on the footsteps of uh, the USP as I reported in the past couple of weeks. Uh, we mentioned also the Deutsche Bank prime brokerage unit that, that BNP Paribas bought in August. They're happy with the integration of that unit. Uh, they hope that it will come into the top line and bear fruit uh, in 2021. So they're still working on this integration this year. And they're also uh, cautiously optimistic about uh, the economic landscape in Europe for 2020 in, in France in particular. They said they've seen GDP growth last year and they expect to see it in 2020. So a positive picture here for uh, BNP Paribas. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.